0: Our leader for tonight is Jim. Hi, my name is Jim. I'm a compulsive overeater and a lot of other things, and I'm really grateful to be at this meeting tonight. Uh, I used to live in San Francisco. I was a regular at this meeting long, long ago in a century far away, and I've uh, been living in the Washington, D.C. area for many years now. So it's, uh, it's good to uh, you know, be back at least virtually uh, at the old uh, Tuesday night century meeting. Anyways, uh, my story is: uh, I am your plain, garden variety compulsive book reader, and I started out as a child, and I can show you what I used to look like back in uh, the olden days. And I was a, a fat kid. Went through all the stuff you go through when you are a uh, you know fat kid in our fat-phobic society, and did a uh, whole bunch of different things. I uh, grew up in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, southwestern PA, and. Uh, I uh, decided at the ripe old age of 18 to go to California, uh, thinking that uh, becoming a uh, long haired hippie freak would fix me, and uh, it didn't. Um, then I thought that, uh, here's what I used to look like back in the old days. Then I thought that uh, you know, getting my hair cut off and uh, getting a, uh, a real job would fix me, uh, it didn't. I thought that moving from Southern to Northern California would fix me. Uh, it didn't. you know, Because everywhere I went, I took my eating disorder with me. Uh, funny how that works. Um, so anyways, to make a long story short, I uh, you know, found myself living in San Francisco in uh, 1981 and didn't know anybody. But even though I you know, didn't know anybody in town, you know, when I came home with my boxes and bags of junk food, I would you know, shut you know, the window, shut the curtains, lest the neighbors I didn't know across Judah Street would get out binoculars, look through my windows, and see that Jim Angel was eating junk food. As if they couldn't tell by looking at me what I did with food. I mean, I had a 46 inch waist, And I'm only five foot two inches tall. And so that made me rather spherical. Uh, Among the many other things I was called uh, in my younger days, beach ball was also one of them. And uh, anyhow, uh, I had tried a whole bunch of different things over the years. And I remember hearing about Overeaters Anonymous, you know, many, many years before I came into OA. And it was always in the back of my Head. And finally, when I was sick and tired of sick and tired, um, I was having nights where the chest pains would start hitting, and I didn't even I didn't even know if I was gonna wake up the next day. And I was 22 years old. Yeah, so I did what any sane rational person would do, yet you know, discovering that you know the food was killing them. I made out my will. Now that's where this disease brought me. And <clears throat> anyway, so I, I stumbled into a meeting and the newcomers meeting was a lot like the one tonight so I just wanna say San Francisco knows how to do it right and uh, the way I got abstinent was I got a sponsor who told me to go to 90 OA meetings in 90 days didn't quite make 90 and 90 I do not claim perfection by any means but I started going to a meeting almost every day and in that way I found out where the meetings were I really liked found out the meetings I didn't like quite as much and uh, Started calling in my food, and of course, the um, very first food plan I chose, I immediately added bread and beer to it. Um, that's a story for another program. But so um, I got abstinent on the old basic four food plan, and the um, it was touch and go because I was on a diet. I mean, I knew I was a food addict. I mean, I'd written in my diary years before I came into OAE. I am just like an alcoholic with chocolate. I didn't know anything about 12-step programs or recoveries, but I knew I was an addict. And when I came into O.A. and they said, yeah, we use the addiction model, I thought, wow, you people understand me, But um, you know, and hearing people at meetings doing all the things I've done around food and then more, and it's like, yeah, I'm I'm at home in O.A. But I started abstaining, and indeed, it was basically, you know, a diet. And I knew I was going to get the same result as any other diet. You know, quick weight loss followed by quick relapse. Been there, done that, lather, rinse, repeat. And, the, um, and then I, I went to a regular OA meeting. It was uh, the old uh, Monday Night First Church meeting. And a speaker got up to share, and... She talked about how she lost 100 pounds and, you know, she looked great, and, and then she started talking about her food plan, food plan about how in fact she didn't eat any grains or starches. And I thought she was totally crazy. Because after all, my mom was a home economics teacher. She taught cooking to junior high school girls. And therefore, by osmosis, I knew everything about nutrition, right? Wrong. But I knew about the four basic food groups, and I knew that you're supposed to get them every day. Of course, I interpreted that as meaning sugar, salt, grease, and starch. And here was somebody who was not eating, you know, the whole bottom of the pyramid scheme. Hmm. But I was desperate. You know, and she said something that made sense, that you know, what our body does is it takes those long starches and chops them up into sugars, yeah. Okay, that's why they call them polysaccharides, right? But I was so desperate, I decided to try it. So I experimented with that ultra-low-carb food plan, and lo and behold, the cravings went away. And I realized, wow, this was a sustainable food plan. Well, it took me about a year to lose the weight. And along that time, in December 1981, I went to the very first 100 Pounders meeting in San Francisco, it was at Vincentian Villa. and it was founded by uh, Angela, and there were four of us at that very first meeting. There was myself, there was Angela, Ernestine, and Andrew, yeah, four of us sitting around at the table, and that was uh, the first meeting back in 1981. but as I said, it took about a year for me to lose the weight, and when I hit maintenance, I didn't even know, you know what I could eat or what I couldn't eat. So, and so I did a bunch of experimentation for about a year and a half of you know, trial and error. Yeah, but I kept calling in my food to my sponsor and trying different things, and I tried adding various grains and starches back into my plan of eating, and the cravings came back. Funny how that works. Now, why my body responds to food that way, I have no idea. That, uh, you know, one of the things I love about Overeaters Anonymous is the agnostic nature of this program. You know, we talk about prayer and meditation, but we don't tell people what you have to believe or what church you should or should not go to. We leave it up to the individual. We talk about abstaining. We talk about having a plan of eating, but we don't pretend to be professionals who will prescribe your food plan. There's a lot we don't know. And that gives OA a lot of credibility to me because you know, I am a real agnostic around food. You know, let's think about the scientific method. You know, think about how scientists get real knowledge, okay? You do an experiment that anybody can duplicate. You know, so if you want to measure the atomic weight of hydrogen, you know, plenty of experiments, that verify that that's the number they all agree on. But, we can't do those kind of experiments on people you know we would have to take a bunch of people like us, not normal people but people with eating disorders like ours you know stick stick us in cages, treat half one way half the other, and slice us up regularly over several generations to figure out the real answers. We can't do those experiments on people, thank God because I don't want to be one of those laboratory rats so almost everything we think we know about nutrition is. Second-hand inference, either studies on big populations with all kinds of other confounding factors, or very short-term studies on just a small number of people that they were able to lock up in a cage for a while, and the uh, or animal studies, that uh, you know, so we don't know for certain almost anything around food, but. What I do is I do what I see working for other people like me in this program. And that's why I keep coming back. And that's why I love 100-pounders meetings. After I moved out of San Francisco and moved to Boston, founded a 100-pounders meeting there. I moved back to Oakland, founded one there. I moved to the D.C. area, founded the Friday night Arlington, Virginia 100-pounders meeting, 8 p.m. Eastern time every Friday night. That's 5 p.m. every uh, Friday night uh, Uh, Pacific time, and uh, great meeting by the way. So if you're looking for another hundred pounders meeting, Friday night, five p.m. Check it out. We're on Zoom. And, anyways, because at hundred pounders meeting, I find other meeting, other people who've been where I've been around the food, and I pay more attention to the people who've been where I've been around the food. Yeah, it might just be the own pathology of my own disease, but my problem was I was morbidly obese. You know, I got the stretch marks to prove it. My problem was not hallucinating about being fat. It was about being morbidly obese. You know. And you know, I've experienced all those situations, you know, my you know, gut hitting the steering wheel in the car, or the uh, not being able to find clothes in normal clothing stores, all the catcalls, you know, climbing a flight of stairs became major physical exertion. You we know, have been there, done that. And I come from a family where the men tend to drop dead in our fifties and sixties. My father died at 56, my brother at 62. um, So this is a life and death illness for me. And at 100 Pounders meetings, I find other people who have been around the food and that has credibility to them. When somebody who's never been fat says, oh, just push yourself away from the table, I want to tell them where to go. But when somebody who's been where I've been around the food says, don't eat no matter what, that has enormous credibility to me. Because they've shown me it is possible to don't eat no matter what. I've watched people in these rooms go through every possible life circumstance without overeating. And that shows me that it is possible. That extra food will not solve any of my problems. Extra food will not put money into my bank account. It will not fix my car, it will not clean my house, it will not make my children behave the way I want them to. Extra food will not do any of that. And yet the insanity of this disease is that the way my brain is wired, you know, it thinks that extra food is the solution to everything. It's just the way it is. Why in this one? Doesn't really matter. This is not overeater's analysis, it's overeater's anonymous. And it, uh, you know, I really don't understand how my telephone works. Okay? I've got a degree in electrical engineering, Now I know a lot about it. But really, you know, the quantum physics of what's going on inside those semiconductors and the programming, um, but as long as I pay my phone bill and plug it in, make it charge, get a charge, it works. And if it doesn't, I know where to go for tech support. And that's the way this program is for me. I do what I see working for other compulsive overeaters like me. You know, preferably 100-pounders who've eaten the way I've eaten. And I don't like to tell food a lot at meetings, but I'm an industrial strength overeater. Now, when I tell food a lot, I tend to get hungry, so I don't like to tell them. Um, when I hear about food, it sometimes gets the juices flowing. So I'm not into food logs, but let me just put it this way, to put 110 pounds extra on a five foot two inch tall body, you gotta be you know, an industrial strength over reader. So the um, anyway, so as I said, I do want to see working for other people like me. You know, so I go to a lot of different meetings and watch people. And to a certain extent, you know, I think you know that one of one of the many higher powers of Overeaters Anonymous is the fact that we are a huge database of people like us, you know, where we share the experience, the strength, and the hope. And we support each other in so many different ways. You know, that's why it says over and over again in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that when all else seems to fail, working with others is what we need to do. That uh, you know, you know, the founders of AA discovered by themselves, they couldn't stay sober. It wasn't until they put their faith into action through helping other drunks that they got to keep their sobriety. There's a great story told about Bill W., the founder of AA, and who knows, maybe it's even true. But uh, the uh, he had just gotten this idea that working with other drunks was gonna keep him sober. And, but it was really tough going at first. And one day he came home and you know, said to his wife Lois, Lois, it's not working. None of those guys are are staying sober. And his wife looked at him and said, Bill, it is working. You're sober. And that's the way this program works. You'll notice four out of our nine tools talk about working with other compulsive overeaters. That's why we go to meetings. That's why we do service meetings. That's why we make phone calls. That's why we sponsor people. All means of interacting with others. Now, this is not the kind of program I can do alone in my own kitchen. When we talk about the spirituality of this program, it's not go all by myself to a mountaintop and chant until the fork levitates into the air. No, the spirituality of this program is a very applied spirituality. As it says in the big book several times, faith without works is dead. That uh, this is a program that demands that I work with other compulsive sickos like me. Now, why it works doesn't matter. Oh, I can spin lots of stories about group support, group norms, and stuff like that. But the reality is, it just does. Um, I remember uh, one day when I was at a meeting, it was at uh, Old French Hospital, and the uh, topic was how it works. And there was a guy who was usually very, very quiet, didn't say much. And the meeting got around to him, and he basically said, It works just fine. And that was all he said. I think that's all he said the entire year. But uh, anyhow, as I said, I do want to see working for others. To get up on my knees in the morning, I ask God for help. I take a few moments of quiet time where I try to meditate. I call my sponsor just about every day, except on the days when I forget. I sponsor several people that I expect to hear from on a daily basis. Um, you know, I still call in my food. You know, and yeah, uh, you know, I've been blessed with. Uh, At the end of this month, it'll be 39 years of continuous back-to-back abstinence. And uh, that is a miracle. Because when I waddled into this program over 100 pounds ago, I couldn't get through a day. And uh, I ate three meals a day, nothing in between, none of my old binge foods. That limits the amount of damage I can do. Within a single day. You know, I've tried all kinds of different food plans over the years, but um, you know I'm sort of back to a you know basically low carb kind of food plan. I eat dead animals, dead vegetables, you know some fruits, some nuts and seeds, some dairy products. And uh, I weigh and measure most of my food, not all of it. Um, I you know respect the people who walk around with a cup and a scale and measure everything they eat. You know because I understand that that's a ritual of acceptance around the food. And it's also an act of pampering, because abstinence is making sure we get just the right amount of food, not too much, not too little. Abstinence is about the ultimate ensuring that we love ourselves and want to make sure that we take good care of ourselves. That's what abstinence is all about. It's not about the Auschwitz death camp deprivation diet. It's not punishment because we've been bad. We are not bad people who need to get good. We are sick people who need to recover. And that's one of the very important lessons I've learned in this fellowship, because I used to be wracked with guilt. Oh, me, I'm fat. I've eaten too much yet again. Oh, I have so much weight to lose. I could, like, not eat anything for six months and still be overweight. And this program has taught me that, hey, I'm not a bad person. I basically you know, have a very serious, lethal, life-threatening eating disorder. And nobody has a cure for what ails us. If they did, none of us would be here. I mean, but, you know, so, uh, oh, the medical profession has tried so many things with people like us over the years. God bless them. I mean, once upon a time, they used to think everybody had a thyroid deficiency. That didn't cure us. Then they thought it was a methamphetamine deficiency. I missed that one. Uh, then they thought it was an antidepressant uh, uh, deficiency. I mean, they've tried all kinds of things and every other year there's another drug of the month and maybe someday they'll get it right. But I've seen so many of these drugs come and go and I realize that any drug that's powerful enough to overcome my eating disorder has got to be a really powerful drug and it's probably going to have really powerful side effects. So. The, uh, so for that reason, I'm kind of uh, leery of it, but I'm, I hope someday they get it right. Maybe they will. Who knows? But I can't afford to, uh, um, you know, wait forever. I can't hold my breath, you know, because this disease would kill me first. Now, you know, I've also uh, done my best to work the 12 steps of this program. Now, you'll notice that steps 1 and 12 are very different from the steps in AA. You know, we we copied the steps from AA, but we made two very big differences. In step one, we admit powerlessness over food, not powerlessness over, you know, our parents debting and spending. And in step 12, we carry the message to other compulsive overeaters, not other people who think bad thoughts about other people. I mean, it's people like us, because I have to work with people like me in order to recover. I mean, I pass as a normal person most of the time, and most of the people I deal with on a daily basis did not know me when. Although I must admit, it's really good to see one person at this meeting who knew me back when. <laughs> that uh, the uh, you know so, and the twelve steps are really what differentiate us from the diet club. Yeah, you know? they're designed to engineer that spiritual awakening that gives us the ability to stumble through each day, one day at a time, without self-destructing in the food. And that's how this program works. Step one, we admit we got a problem. Step two, we come to believe there's hope. Step three, we become willing to follow a spiritual path. Now, I don't believe anybody would be here this late in a meeting if they hadn't taken off, if they hadn't started and and taken a good start in those three steps. You wouldn't be here if you didn't know if you didn't know you had a problem. You wouldn't have stuck around this long if you didn't have some kind of hope that this might help you. And you wouldn't have stuck around past the serenity prayer if you weren't willing for something outside yourself to help. Then come the cleanup steps, you know, where we take inventory. We take a good hard look at ourselves, find out where the problems are. You know, We deal with the wreckage from the past by making amends. And then we get the daily living steps where we basically Steps 10 through 12, what we basically do is we do what we do in steps 1 through 9 and we continue to take inventory. And what I do on a daily basis with my 10th step is I do a mental 10th step and I remind myself that my disease is threefold, part physical, part emotional, part spiritual. And then I ask myself, where am I in all three of those dimensions? Physically is my food clean? Or am I playing games around the food? As an addict, I am always trying to push the envelope to see how much can I get away with. But, uh, and is there anything in my food plan I need to change? Anything physically I need to deal with? You know, do I need any medical attention? You know, Am I doing the things I'm supposed to be doing? Rest, exercise, all that stuff? But physical is only part of it. Where am I emotional? Was I angry? Was I upset? Is there something I need to be dealing with? And then spiritually, you know, am I doing my prayer, my meditation? Where do I stand on all the tools of this program? How many OA meetings have I been to in the last week? You know, I still need three or four OA meetings a week to stay glued together because I'm an industrial strength over reader. I mean, this program's like the mafia. Once you get in, you can't get out because you know too much. And you know, that's the, um, you know, I'm not cured. You know, I'm like somebody's lost his legs. I'm not gonna grow new ones. And so I continue to need to do the things I did 39 years ago when I was getting abstinent because that's what I need to do to survive. You know, we don't graduate from this program. You know, it's not thin thighs in 30 seconds. It's basically a way of life that allows us to withstand all the vicissitudes of life without overeating. So my brother was hospitalized, my other brother was hospitalized last night. And you know, so there's a lot of family stuff going back and forth about what the situation is. But you know what? My eating extra food is not gonna fix my brother. You know, it's not gonna do any good for anybody. And I need to be continually reminded of that because for me, I am an expert excuse maker. You know, almost anything can be turned into an excuse. Oh, I'm out of time. That's an excuse. You know, I'm too busy, too bored, uh, too angry, too upset, too happy, must celebrate. Anything is an excuse, but you know what? this program has taught me to count my blessings. And uh, you know, with that, I will turn it back over to the Secretary. I just want to say thank you so much. Oh, one more thing. Uh, I'll post in the chat window a, uh, a list of all the other 100 Pounders meetings I've found around the country. So uh, thank you.